This is Mark Tyler Nobleman, author of Boys of Steel, the creators of Superman, and you're listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 81, and my name is Michael Bradley. This episode, we are going to be looking at the Superman story from Action Comics number 30. First up, though, brand new iTunes review. This one comes from Joe Anthrax, also known as Sean Engel. It's a five-star review, and he writes, Informative and fun. Michael approaches the golden age of Superman comics with wit, wisdom, and a handful of irreverence, all the time giving a loving but not pandering view of the world's greatest superhero. He covers all aspects of the character, including the comics, radio shows, newspaper strips, and more, and never fails to entertain and inform. Well worth listening to, even if you aren't the biggest fan of The Man of Steel. There are people who aren't fans of Superman? I I have never heard of these weird creatures. But thanks for the review, Sean. Sean is host of the excellent Just One of the Guys podcast, a Green Lantern show looking at the 90s material, with an emphasis on Guy Gardner and eventually Kyle Rayner. It's a great show that I... It's, it's one of the shows that I really look forward to hearing each and every week. Sean's been going for about five or six months at this point, and he just came out of the gate swinging. The address is justoneoftheguys.libsyn.com, and I highly encourage you to check it out when you have time. Uh, But right now, we're going to take a quick break, play a promo for another excellent podcast that you should listen to after you're done listening to this one and after you're done listening to Sean's, and then we will talk about our story. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Bad Girl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Bad Girl to Oracle is a podcast and site dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the Bad Girl mantle for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1985. The goal of BTO is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Bad Girl and continue on through her current tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at vintage issues of Detective Comics and Batman and modern issues of Bad Girl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I examine Barbara Gordon's appearances in the media, such as TV, film, etc. I've been blessed to be able to interview writer Brian Q. Miller, and I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Please visit us online at batgirltooracle.net and look for us on iTunes. Thank you. With 64 pages and a price of 10 cents, 15 cents Canada, 
Action Comics number 30 was released sometime around September 24, 1940. That puts it coming out just a few days after the end of the Bathysphere storyline from the radio show, which we looked at last episode. The next storyline had already started as well, having aired one episode. It also came out two weeks after Superman number 7, which Jeffrey Taylor and I looked at two episodes ago, and roughly a week and a half before the end of the Daily Newspaper storyline that will be covered in a couple episodes. The Sunday Strip, meanwhile, was continuing with its long story that will be in a future episode. The cover to Action Comics number 30 shows Superman hoisting a yellow sedan high into the air while the thugs inside try shooting at the Man of Steel, which, as I said when Jeffrey was here and we had a similar scene, can't in any way end well for them. It had a November cover date, but unfortunately the credits for this cover are a bit of a question mark. Most sources seem to agree that it was penciled by Joe Schuster, but Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics and DC Comics' website credit Paul Loretta with inking. The Grand Comics database credits Leo Nowak, or maybe Wayne Boring. I thought that Nowak didn't start working for the shop until a few months from now. And likewise, I thought Loretta was gone or on his way out by this point. It's hard to say. We are kind of heading into a point with the Schuster shop where new faces were coming in. Uh, Some of the old guard was leaving. Paul Cassidy had moved back to Wisconsin by this point, Uh, even though he continued to do some work for the shop. You know, he doesn't completely move on until 1941. But anyway, we are on the doorstep of a period where it can be really hard to determine who was working on what, especially since there are times when many people were, were working on the same story. But still, whoever was responsible for it, it's a great cover. Superman looks fantastic, the car is well rendered, and even the thugs look good. The license plate attached to the front right fender of the car reads 1940, which was a nice nod to the year. Despite the changes in the roster of artists, like I said, I think last time we looked at an issue of action, this is a period of really strong and dynamic covers for the title. Turning inside, our 13-page Superman story was written by Jerry Siegel, with art by Jack Burnley, the third in his string of stories in this title. And while it was untitled at publication, it has later been called The Summer Snow and A Midsummer Snowstorm. Which is odd, since the book came out in the fall, but at least we're looking at it in the middle of summer. The inhabitants of Metropolis are faced by an incredible paradox. It is midsummer. They should be sweltering in a scorching heat wave. And yet, defying all of nature's established laws, the great city is caught in the midst of a bitter snowstorm. As we begin, Clark Kent goes to see the Daily Planet's weatherman, Mr. Calvert, to find out about the strange weather that has enveloped Metropolis. Calvert is unable to explain it, but as they're talking, an emergency notice is broadcast over the radio. A woman named Laura Vogel pleads for Superman's help, saying to meet her in the park in an hour and she can explain the weather. Calvert wonders aloud if Superman heard the message, and if he'll follow up, and Clark replies that he wouldn't be surprised. He then heads back to the Daily Planet, where Editor Taylor, yes, Editor Taylor, assigns him to cover the story. As Lois whines, saying that she wants to cover the story, Clark slips into a nearby storeroom and changes to Superman. 
Meanwhile, not willing to take no for an answer, Lois heads out, determined to get the story for herself. Unbeknownst to either Lois or Superman, though, at just that moment, two women in a car have gotten stuck in a snowdrift at the park. As one woman exits, determined to keep the meeting with Superman, a second car pulls up, full of stereotypically dressed Arab men. The men put on helmets, and then use a strange weapon to fire a strange, glowing ball of light at the woman. Meanwhile, Superman has performed a tremendous leap from the roof of the Daily Planet, and soars like a bird, or maybe a plane, towards the park. As he approaches, he sees a glowing ball of light strike the girl, instantly vaporizing her, leaving behind only a shadow on the snow where she once stood. Hearing her screams, an officer approaches and starts to ticket the man for DWA, driving while Arab, but he's hit by another blast from the weapon and suffers the same fate as the woman. From a nearby rooftop, Superman, who had apparently just stood around and watched all this happen, can hardly believe his eyes. Lois, having also seen everything, runs after the car, knowing full well that they were responsible for two murders. Seeing her, the men fire the weapon once more this time directed at our favorite female reporter. But, tired of just standing around doing nothing, Superman dives downward, grabbing Lois and bounding back into the air, mere moments before she suffers the shadow death. Landing safely on the ground a short distance away, Superman returns to confront the thugs, who are pulling the second woman, a blonde, from the car. They hold a gun to her head and warn Superman to stay back, or she'll die. They then tell Superman he has five seconds to leave alone, and allow Lois to stay with them as well. Superman replies that it seems he has no other option and starts to leave off, but not before grabbing Lois first. Lois begs Superman to help the other woman as well, but Superman merely deposits Lois on the roof of the Daily Planet and leaps off once more, leaving Lois to wonder if Superman has truly turned his back on someone in need of help. Unbeknownst to Lois, though, Superman hasn't turned his back, and is currently trailing the thug's car. He has somehow come to the conclusion that the blonde woman is Laura Vogel, and while he doesn't know what's going on, he knows it will be an interesting case. Meanwhile, across the globe, in the sun-scorched Sahara Desert, a caravan of camel-riding sheiks, along with explorer Carlton Vogel, nears the long-lost city of Yolanda. As they approach, a caravan of helmeted raiders, like those causing hijinks in Metropolis, attacks, launching a bevy of the glowing balls of light. And soon, nothing is left of Vogel's expedition but shadows on the sand. And the raiders celebrate, saying that Zolar will be pleased. Back in Metropolis, Superman has caught up with the thugs in a secluded spot. As they lead the woman towards a strange airship, the Man of Steel descends into their midst, demanding that they release her. But the vicious thugs give no answer, save for another blast from their weapon. The glowy ball of light hits Superman square in the chest, and, much to their surprise, it doesn't vaporize him, but does succeed in knocking him unconscious. The thugs take both Superman and the girl aboard the ship, and the ship soon takes off, destination unknown. Shortly, a still groggy Superman comes to, only to find himself chained to a post aboard the ship. Beside him is the blonde woman similarly chained. The woman apologizes for getting Superman into the situation, and then in a totally shameless and in no way subtle dump of plot exposition, spends the next page explaining that she is Laura Vogel. She says her brother Carlton discovered Zolar's plan to steal stockpiles of radium 
from the city of Ulanda, which he can then use to power his disintegrator weapon and control the weather. Apparently, Carlton somehow learned of the plan and went to Ulanda to warn the people there. Zolar sent his men and threatened Laura not to say anything and gave her until the first snowfall to make her decision. Since it's summer, Laura thought that that would be a long way off, so she really didn't give much thought to the madman wanting to ravage a city to steal hazardous materials in order to power weapons capable of vaporizing people. So, when it started to snow, she realized she'd been tricked and was like, oh no. Yeah, that makes no sense to me either. But just wait, it gets better, he said with so much sarcasm dripping that you probably need a towel. So, anyway, after Laura gets done driving the crazy truck down Exposition Highway, the ship's pilot, who is apparently sitting right there, leans over and says, oh, by the way, Carlton's dead. And uh, that's what happens to everyone who opposes Zolar. Laura cries, and Superman thinks how he's going to punch Zolar in the face. As if he somehow knew that we needed to advance the plot at this stage, Zolar himself appears on the ship's monitor. The guard tells him that they have taken the now-powerless Superman hostage, and Zolar orders them to bring the Man of Steel before him. Superman says he won't be so happy when that happens, and Zolar responds that he's unworried because Superman is now powerless. But, little does Zolar know, Superman's strength has fully returned. As the ship continues onward, Superman uses his X-ray vision to keep track of their location. And as the ship soars above Zolar's stronghold, he breaks free of his bonds and then frees Laura. As the guard yells for the glowy lightball gun, Superman stomps his feet into the floor of the ship, eventually causing the ship to break in half. The Man of Steel then grabs Laura and leaps away as the ship goes down in flames. And yes, kills most everyone on board. So, Zolar sees that Superman has escaped and orders his men to destroy him. They try shooting a bunch of the glowy lightball guns at him, but Superman just outruns them. They launch a squadron of stratoships at him, but given that they aren't armed, Superman just throws them around like twigs and crashes them together. Yes, again, killing anyone on board. Apparently tired of messing around at this point, Zolar orders his men to ignore the Man of Steel and destroy the city. The same city, you might remember, that contains radium that he wants. It's really better if you just don't think about it. Release the meteor death, Zolar screams, and soon airships rain terror down on the scared people. There's panic in the streets, human sacrifice, mass hysteria, dogs and cats living together, forced references to pop culture. As Zolar relishes and makes plans to get the radium from the city he just leveled, Superman approaches with Laura in his arms. Realizing Laura left out one tiny bit of exposition earlier, Superman asks her why, when the glowy lightball gun destroys someone, it only leaves a shadow. And Laura explains that, quote, radium has photographic qualities. Satisfied, Superman crashes through the side of Zolar's ship, grabs the madman, and demands, Signal your fleet to destroy itself, or I'll destroy you. No, no, really. Superman, champion of the oppressed, victor of all that is good, right, and true, just demanded this guy order his army to commit mass suicide. Superman! So, Zolar does as demanded, the fleet crashes, and back aboard the airship, a startling turn of events takes place. 
Superman spins, and he finds he is at the end of the barrel of the globe gun, which is being held by... Laura. reveals that she isn't Laura at all. The real Laura was killed back in the park, and she's actually an agent of Zolar. She then fires the gun at the Man of Steel, but the glowy ball of light merely bounces off Superman's chest, deflecting back and hitting Zolar and fake Laura. The blast kills both of them and knocks Superman unconscious again. With no one left to pilot it, Zolar's ship crashes to the ground, and the shock revives the Man of Steel, who gleefully skips away, soon returning to the Daily Planet and a very mouthy Lois. The End This story was bad. Bad, bad, bad. But on a brighter side, what an unexpected kind of story. Poor storytelling aside, it was unexpected in a very good way. The trappings of the story are what I would have possibly expected from the radio show at this stage, more than comics. Not that Siegel didn't or couldn't write this kind of story, but more that he didn't and hasn't at the point we're at. I like this story in that it showed off Siegel's mind and ability to tell stories about things other than Superman beating up you know, random thugs. If only it had been a better story, because I love these more sci-fi ideas in the feature and really wish Siegel would have played with them more in his stories. Some of you might remember the Federal Men story that I talked about in one of the fifth week installments a few months back. This reminded me of that, not tonally or or even plot-wise, but in that it seemed like a departure from the normal kinds of stories told in the strip and it showed Siegel stretching muscles he normally didn't get to use in his most popular feature, but definitely had. So, getting into the notes, page one, we are back to the half-page opening splash this time. Uh, That full-pager from issue 29 was uh, an anomaly as far as this run from Burnley goes, unfortunately. But our splash shows Superman high in the sky above Metropolis. The rooftops below are covered with snow and and more snow falls gently in the background in front of, well, it's not a harvest moon, but that's kind of what it looks like. It's a beautiful splash. Well-rendered, wonderfully colored. It relates to the story. I I just love it. It's not especially dynamic or exciting. You know, we don't see Superman throwing a tank or having someone, you know, uh, crashing an airplane or whatever, but it's just a gorgeous shot of Superman soaring through the sky with a scenic wintertime city below him. I I love it. Though, when we move on to the text, we find it's not winter, which I thought made for a really great hook for the story. Unfortunately, they never really do much with it. They use it to get Clark and, ultimately, Superman involved, but then it's pretty much dropped aside from the mention later that Zolar had caused it, and even that was probably only there because they had set it up at the beginning, and then they had to explain it. Speaking of how Superman gets involved, though, Laura broadcasts a message over the radio calling for Superman's help. This is only the second time that we've seen people specifically requesting 
Superman's assistants. The first being in Carnahan's Air from Action Comics number 24, where the guy called on Superman to help straighten out his son. So I enjoyed that. Page 2, Clark heads back to the Daily Planet and gets his assignment from George Taylor, or simply Taylor as he's called here, despite the fact that Perry White, or White, was shown in Superman number 7. Assuming the dates from Mike's Amazing World are correct, or at least close, which, as I've said before, I'm willing to buy that they are until someone presents me with better information, the only explanation I can offer is that these stories were done out of order compared to when they were printed, or or how they were printed. Since Burnley wasn't a part of the Schuster shop, it would make sense to me that he needed his scripts a little earlier, and thus George Taylor here, where White took over last issue to bring it in line with the radio show. In any event, this is the final comic book appearance of George Taylor until Superman Takes a Wife from Action Comics number 484 in 1978. And we'll be covering that, oh, about around episode 2,016,093, give or take. Anyway, that not only makes it the last comic book appearance not published during my lifetime, but the last before the official split of Earth 1 and Earth 2. Now, we will be seeing George Taylor again in the newspaper strips, so he won't disappear completely just yet. In fact, I think... I would have to check, but I think Taylor sticks around in the newspapers until early 1941, so we've got a few more months with him there. Um, Here on this page, though, is where, for the story, my eyebrow first went up. We see the dark-haired woman getting out of the car and saying... We can't risk missing Superman. I'll continue on foot. I wondered why Zolar's men would worry killing off this woman so specifically if it it was really Laura that they were after. Thankfully, that got answered at the end of the story when we learned that the dark-haired woman is Laura. Unfortunately, we also learned that the blonde was an agent of Zolar. This makes her actions all through the story completely nonsensical, since she lays out Zolar's entire plan for Superman over on page 8. I don't understand what her purpose was in being with Laura. Was she kidnapping her, or trying to kill her, or just trying to keep her from alerting the authorities? None of it makes sense given that Laura was driving the car, and the blonde doesn't seem to be doing much to stop her from getting out of the car and going to meet Superman. In fact, Laura, when she's getting out of the car, she says, We can't risk missing Superman, implying that she and the blonde are working together. And worse, and I'll mention this here since there's really no other place for it, really, but it doesn't make much sense that they would involve Laura at all, or Metropolis, for that matter. Zolar's whole objective was to get the radium from Yolanda. So why go to all the trouble of causing the snowstorm in Metropolis? just because he can? That's dumb. It could be explained that it was a test of his technology, or that there was something in Metropolis that he wanted as well. Or maybe he did it specifically to get Superman involved and force a confrontation, thinking he could kill him with the glowy light ball gun. But none of that is explained or mentioned. I can make an allowance for the lack of explanation as to why they're messing with Metropolis. I mean, yes, it would have been nice, but I also recognize that we often don't get explanations as to why the villains do what they do, so it's not a huge deal. 
but the revelation that Laura isn't Laura is really dumb once you consider the whole story. But what's interesting is, that only comes into play at the very end. If you can somehow ignore that reveal, you know, if you somehow skip the last page of the story, this is actually a, a pretty decent story, all things considered. But um, back to the you know specific notes, it was amusing that they went out of their way, not once, but twice, to point out that Zolar's men, who are Arab, remember, were driving a foreign car. I don't know how prolific foreign-made cars were in the U.S. in 1940. I know that it wasn't uncommon for people not to own cars at all, but as to the ratio of foreign to domestic, I'm just not well sure. Still, this is the run-up to the US's, U.S.'s involvement in World War II and all the American pride that that entails. So the foreign bad guy would obviously be driving a foreign car. And I do think it's worth pointing out that these guys are the first non-white-skinned villains, or, or in fact the first non-white-skinned characters, to appear in a Superman story from the comics or newspapers. And yes, you could point out that they are villains, or that they're dressed rather stereotypically, but like Jeffrey said two episodes ago, even the white-skinned characters are stereotypes at this point. And while they can be seen as stereotypes, they aren't the overtly negative and, you know, the offensive racial stereotypes that unfortunately are going to come along or that are seen in other stories from this period. This isn't gargantua teapots or a Chinese man with bright yellow skin and, and small slits where his eyes should be and big buck teeth. If anything, I would call this a caricature more than a stereotype, uh, just like Vogel over on page 5, who is portrayed, you know, with the big... Uh, safari hat and the white clothes like a, a, <laughs> a stereotypical rich white guy but still for the first non-white skin characters in a Superman story from the comics or newspapers really not bad I and mean, we'll see how this continues as we get through the next couple years and, and as the, the World War II really takes hold and the U.S.'s involvement and in that really, really comes to a head page 3 well, from the bottom of page 2 and onto page 3, this weapon here is about the size of a large coffee can and shoots what appears to be a glowing ball of light. When it comes near the target, it causes them to disintegrate, leaving only a shadow. They give no explanation in the story for how it works, which is fine because it's ultimately not important and far from uncommon in this era. However, the body is being vaporized and resulting in a shadow effect on the wall or the ground, it's scary how closely that resembles the results seen after Hiroshima. Even though that was a full five years away and real development of the bomb hadn't even begun yet. Also on this page, it says Superman leaps off from the roof of the Daily Planet. I know it's not the first time he's done that, but it's one of the first that I can remember where he went up there for the express purpose of taking off. Because usually, until now, he's been leaping out of the window or or from an alley or something. Page 4, we get an excellent panel of Superman streaking downward in a very flight-like pose as he goes to save Lois. Burnley drew such an amazing Superman. The next panel, for what it's worth, was used on the cover of Action Comics Archives Volume 2, which reprints this story. It's a rare case for Superman where a piece of interior artwork was used for the archives cover rather than the artwork of a cover of a comic. 
Um, after Superman saves her and they land safely on the ground, Lois says, I owe my life to you. And Superman responds, Save your thanks. I haven't time to acknowledge them. No. If you have time to talk about how you don't have time to acknowledge something, you have time to say you're welcome. I don't care if you are a superhero. Rudeness is never okay. Didn't your mother ever teach... Oh, wait. Too soon? Page 5. Here, Superman has saved Lois from the thugs and carries her back to the Daily Planet. And on the way, she says that he needs to go back and help uh, who they think is Laura. And Superman replies, If she insists on getting into trouble, that's her worry, not mine. And then as he's leaping off, Lois is thinking that maybe Superman has turned his back on somebody. She says, Surely Superman wouldn't desert someone in need of help. Of course, we find out in the next panel that he's not, but I found that interesting. I, I'm not sure if Siegel was trying to build to something there and it just never happened or if it was just a thing, but still, it's interesting. Uh, jumping to page 7, Superman is hit by the glowing ball of light and he survives, but it knocks him out and apparently steals his strength. This makes the second issue in a row where he's been zapped by something like that, both times some fantastic new invention. Once more, earmark that and keep that in mind for an upcoming story. Page 8, a.k.a. the page of stupidity. So, Superman wakes up and finds that he's chained and handcuffed inside the ship, and that who we've been led to believe is Laura Vogel is tied up next to him. Given that this turns out not to be Laura, why is she tied up at all? I mean, if they were trying to maintain the ruse that she's Laura, I can maybe understand it. But given that I don't get the purpose for the ruse to begin with, I, I, I sure don't understand any reason to continue it. But then she goes on for five panels, laying out everything about Zolar and his entire plan and everything that happened. She says, I am Laura Vogel, sister of Carlton Vogel, the archaeologist. At present, he is in an unexplored portion of the Sahara Desert. He wrote telling me strange things about a sinister individual named Zolar. Zolar possesses great stores of radium, and with it is able to perform such miracles as total disintegration and controlling the weather. Zolar's thirst for radium drives him to any lengths to get it. Now he plans to steal the accumulated supply of the lost city of Ulanda. Carlton went to warn the people of that city. Zolar learned of the letter sent to me. His emissaries came to warn me into silence. They gave me until the first snowfall to make my decision. Thinking that would be a long time off, I accepted. But they tricked me by artificially causing a snowstorm. Then I broadcast my appeal to you. Okay, well I guess that does explain why he's messing around in Metropolis. Because apparently causing a snowstorm to envelop a city of 7 million people just to move up a deadline is the easiest way to proceed. Clearly. I mean, I never would have thought of that. I, I guess that's why I'm not a supervillain. Well, that, and I don't have a mustache long enough to twirl. Um, but can you imagine... <laughs> can you imagine Laura going to the uh, New York City Police Department, who have, or the Metropolis Police Department, who have never seen this fancy technology and can scarcely comprehend Superman, and telling them that a guy in the Sahara Desert is causing it to snow in Metropolis so that he can steal stockpiles of radium from a long-lost city where no white man has ever been before? She'd still be tied up and confined, but instead of ropes in an airship, it would probably be straitjacket and padded walls. And even if they did believe her, what are they going to do about it? 
It's going to take weeks, if not months or years, to get the message to high enough authority to mobilize a team to do anything. Which makes me think that Zolar is just stupid. I mean, does he think the president is going to believe a random woman on the street and automatically call up King Farouk, who would then send down a team? And even if he did, what would it matter? I mean, this is all happening at the same time. And moreover, there's kind of a little thing called World War II brewing around the world, and Africa is a little bit busy being a battleground right at this moment. None of it makes any sense at all. And it makes negative amounts of sense, given that this woman is in league with Zolar and shouldn't be revealing their whole plan to the one guy with enough power to stop them to begin with. And then, after fake Laura lays out all the plot exposition, the guy who is flying the ship, flying the ship with a steering wheel, might I point out, is apparently seated only about five feet away, despite not being visible in any other panel, and he leans over and says, You'll be interested to learn that Carlton Vogel has succumbed to the Shadow Death. Thus perish all who oppose Zolar. It's just... Ah! Why is this important information for him to share right now, considering he and the blonde woman are both on the same side? It, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. Page 9. The camera moves slightly to the right, and the steering wheel that he was using to, to pilot the ship has disappeared. And in its place is a huge computer monitor with Zolar's face on it. Uh, Zolar, who I want to point out, looks a whole lot like the ultra-humanite, and even more like the yellow mask as depicted in the ad from Superman number 7, uh, without the mask, because he's an evil, bald scientist, and the Schuster shop loved them some evil, bald scientists. It's actually a great moment in the story taken on its own. Zolar threatens Superman, and we learn that Superman has a strength back and is just biding his time. But when you put it in the context of the rest of the story, it's really, really dumb. Uh, the second to last panel on the page is kind of neat. Not especially great, because the chains are thin, but we see Superman snapping his bonds. As iconic as that image of Superman snapping chains is, we really haven't seen it happen too often in the context of a story. Um, page 10, Superman breaks the ship in two with his bare feet, thereby killing everyone inside. I think those things speak for themselves. Yeah, sure, the next panel shows the guy parachuting away, but there, were, there was clearly more than one person aboard the ship. But this is a great panel, though, of Superman leaping free of the wreckage as the ship goes down in flames behind him. More and more credit to Burnley for for making a bad story at least look cool. Um, Page 11, and again here, really from the bottom of page 10 to the top of page 12, it is again a great moment in the story. It's an exciting scene as Superman is, you know, he saved the girl, and then there's a, a squadron of strato ships attacking and just as an aside, Stratoships is a great name, by the way. But as Superman leaps into the air to destroy the ships, Zolar orders a second squadron to destroy the city. And there's a moment where Superman looks resolved, and he looks up into the sky and says, We've got to prevent Zolar from demolishing that city. And then there are several panels of people uh, running through the streets of Yolanda in terror as Zolar relishing in his sadistic glee, you know, as the ships rain havoc. It's awesome, but ultimately ruined by 
well, not the framing sequence, but, but what got us to this point and what I know is coming on the final page. Page 12, Superman busts through the side of Zolar's ship, somehow not depressurizing it and causing it to crash. It's a, well, I don't want to say it's a nice shot, but somehow, even though he had her in his arms on the way to the ship, somehow Laura is already inside and safely off to the side as Superman crashes through the ship. Also, while it may be moot at this point, given, given all the other problems, Superman is missing his shield in two panels on this page and one on the next, including the big flashy hero moment where he smashes through the side of the ship. The artwork in this story is great, but it does get a little rougher towards the end, so it makes me wonder if Burnley might have been you know, running behind and, and kind of had to rush through the last couple pages. Um, anyway, so Superman now is inside the ship and he grabs Zolar and demands that he use his mental powers to command his men to kill themselves. I don't care if Zolar did the ordering. When Superman is forcing him to do it, Superman is still guilty of murder. Page 13. Oh, Laura isn't Laura. Well, that's a twist. And I've gone on enough about that, so I won't do it again. But when fake Laura fires the weapon at Superman again, and this time the glowy ball of light just bounces off his chest. No explanation, nothing. It's a nice panel. You know, Superman's recoiled back and his arm is up in fear. But they don't explain why he was unaffected by it this time. Just that it bounces off and and hits the bad guys, conveniently killing them. And then once the ship crashes, Superman leaps off, happy as a pig in slop, that the Ulandians... Oh, excuse me, the surviving Ulandians won't be menaced by Zolar. Never mind that dozens, if not hundreds, of people were killed in the process, a large part of the city has been leveled, and back in Metropolis, even more people have died, including Laura, the woman he set out to protect in the first place. And it gets worse, yeah, yeah, it gets worse, when Clark returns to the Daily Planet. He walks in, and Lois says... It's obvious Superman fumbled in his attempt to save Laura Vogel, but at least the weather is back to normal. Yeah, Lois. The fact that the weather is nice again is the important thing here. Way to go. And Clark isn't much better, as he responds, So, your idol has fumbled, eh? Pardon me while I laugh. People just died, including the very person you set out to help. Stop being flip. Overall, I really, really, really wanted to like this story. It has a lot of stuff in it that I'm yearning to see more of in Superman stories, but this was just terrible. And the sad part is, had the final revelation at the end about Laura not being Laura not been a part of it, it really wouldn't have been half bad. I mean, most of my issues with a story that don't stem from the revelation could pretty easily be discounted as Golden Age storytelling. Thankfully, the art, except for what kind of feels like a rush job at the end, is gorgeous. Jack Burnley has done little wrong on his Superman work, and it makes me pretty sad that we're nearly halfway through his run on Action Comics here. I mean, in the last two stories alone, he has succeeded in making a bad story readable just with the excellent art. But thankfully, even after he's gone from this stint on action, we will see more of him down the road. Definitely check out the show notes uh, for this to see panels I post. I continue to be amazed that Burnley brings a much more refined look to the strip 
but that he's still able to evoke that early Schuster style. If you want to read this story, can't imagine why you would, except to look at the art, but if you want to read it, it's been reprinted twice. First in Superman in Action Comics Archives Volume 2, which, as I mentioned, features Jack Burnley's art on the cover, and then more recently in Superman Chronicles Volume 4. It should also be noted that this story has been cited as bearing a remarkable similarity to a 1936 Doc Savage novel titled Murder Mirage. That story was written by Lawrence Donovan and was the 35th Doc Savage novel, but only the second not written or co-written by Lester Dent. I've never read it myself. I really need to bone up on my Doc Savage someday. But the book description from Amazon reads, A blizzard in July in a woman's image frozen in glass. How could these bizarre events be possibly connected? To find the answer and save the life of Ranyan Cartheris, the Man of Bronze and his dauntless allies journey to hot desert sands halfway around the world, where they are trapped, perhaps never to emerge, in the ancient underground tombs of Tassinan. From research I did, the story also involves a globe that emits a strange green light that vaporizes people, leaving only a shadow, and finds Doc Savage facing off against two groups of thugs, one of them being a band of Arabs. The more I look into it, it doesn't seem like a complete beat-for-beat swipe of the story, but definitely more than a little bit inspired by. Hopefully the Doc Savage uh, original didn't have the gaping plot issues like this story did. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Every legend has a beginning. Other features in this issue of Action Comics include Pet Morgan, The Black Pirate, The Three Aces, Tex Thompson, Clip Carson, and Zaytara. There's also a half-page ad for Superman number 7, and half-page ads for All-Star Comics and the Superman and Batman titles. The full-page ad for the Crypto Ray Gun appears again, in addition to a tiny ad at the end of the Three Aces story that refers to the larger ad on the inside front cover. And there's also a repeat of the ad promoting the Return of the Yellow Mask storyline that's upcoming on the radio. The issue also has the monthly book review, Again, not a review. (laughs) Looking at The Royal Road to Romance by Richard Halliburton, which 
I have never read, nor had I even heard about prior to this, so you are on your own if you want to know about it. And last but not least, we have our 18th Superman of America page. The message from Clark Kent says that every member of the club should aid in the mission of helping the weak and the oppressed. He says they might not have the power to smash crime waves or do things on a grand scale, but they do have the power to do their part in stopping things like bullying and animal cruelty. If a person is strong enough to stand up for his rights at all times, he is a lucky person indeed. But he must not forget that some others may not be equally fortunate. So strong people of good character must also stand up for the rights of others. Believe me, members, it is a grand feeling to know that somebody else is sincerely grateful to you for the hand of friendship proffered when the need of it is the greatest. Champion of the weak and oppressed, that's Superman. And it should also be you and you, and you. Very neat. I, I like this one a lot. I, I like that they are able, or were able to take Superman's mission as champion of the weak and the oppressed and put it in the perspective of how kids can fulfill that same mission, even if they can't do it on the scale of Superman. As always, we have our Superman secret message, which this time can be decoded using code PLUTO, number 8, on your handy-dandy Superman of America club club decoder and the message is strength has no greatness unless it is used to aid the weak outside of action comics it was overall kind of a dull month but things pick up again really soon we had detective comics number 44 with a really goofy batman story also out were adventure comics number 55 and superman number seven the latter of which we looked at two episodes ago Flash Comics number 11 had a Sheldon Moldoff cover with Hawkman fighting a gorilla. Nothing strange about that. And inside saw the final Rod Ryan of the Sky Police strip by Paul H. Jepsen. And finally from DC slash All-American was All-American Comics number 20. There was no issue of more fun comics this month because there were two last month. Other notable comics not produced by Superman's publishers were Human Torch number 2, technically a first issue since it inherited the numbering of Red Raven, which only lasted one issue, and features the debut of Human Torch's very own sidekick, Toro the Flame Wonder. Actually, he's not called the Flame Wonder, but he should have been. Anyway, Quality Comics also came out with National Comics number 5, featuring the very first appearance of Quicksilver, now known as the DC hero Max Mercury. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman.
Comics Monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. The internet is really, really great. For Guy Gardner Podcast. I got a fast connection so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for... And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneofthegues.lips.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Internet is for internet is for internet is for just one of the guys dot libson dot com. Yeah. Next episode, we will be returning to the radio show for the seventeenth storyline from the Superman serial. It's a shorter storyline than last time, so we'll be. Uh, tackling it in one episode, but please, like I asked last time, please continue to write in and let me know your thoughts on those longer radio storylines. Do you want me to keep them in one episode if I can, like I did last episode, or would you like me to split them up? Just write in and let me know. I want to thank you all for joining me this time out, and I want to invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes and links to all back episodes of the show. If you have questions or comments or other feedback, you can send your emails to thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter to not only send feedback that way, but to get updates on your wall or feed whenever I have new episodes or show-related news. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so via the RSS feed or iTunes. Uh, Once again, thanks to Sean Engel for the iTunes review, and to the rest of you, if you want to be awesome like Sean, go leave one yourself today, alright? Don't forget the Superman homepage at supermanhomepage.com and the Superman Podcast Network at supermanpodcastnetwork.com, both of which have all kinds of other Superman stuff to fill your needs in between episodes of Thrilling Adventures of Superman. And that may officially be the most uses of Superman in one sentence ever. Superman. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye.
Mom, mom, we should have gotten the bad boys. Darling, they'd be here if they could. Mom, 